Welcome to Restart Radio, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny, shiny things to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronic repair events here in London are just the beginning. My name is Ugo Vallauri from the Restart Project, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by Andrews Lee. Hello. And by Dave Lukes, our long-standing restarter. Hi. Today, we are going to talk about uh, some interesting repair tips and then get into a conversation about uh, maker spaces and the connections between the maker and the repair of movements, and then discuss some controversial news item that we've come across this week. So before we get started, I wanted to introduce our special guest for today, uh, Andrew, uh, who is a maker, consultant, researcher uh, from Brighton, and who has been following the maker movement uh, developing for now a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess probably since about maybe 2010, 2011, when I realized there was this, this thing called a maker movement. So um, you were involved in the maker movement in a number of different capacities. Tell us a bit more. Yeah, sure. So um, as well as making things myself, um, in 2011, I was one of the people who set up Brighton Mini Maker Fair, which was one of the earlier uh, maker fairs in the, in the UK. That's an event where everyone can come along and um, learn about making. They can see makers and their amazing projects. They can learn new skills and share expertise and ideas. That's a very sort of really exciting, that's like a festival of, of DIY technology, that's how I call it. So I've been doing that for about five years. And then uh, more recently, I did some, did some research into makerspaces that you mentioned. Uh, and also last year with some friends, mostly in London, we set up a, another event called Maker Assembly, which is a, a slightly less, less of a festival kind of event and more of a conference, which tries to take a, a more critical look at maker cultures. Um, today and in the past and in the future and obviously not just around not just here but around the world and you're both a maker yourself and uh, a proclaimed fixer i hear <laughs> uh i'm i'm not sure i would um proclaim too hard about my fixing talents or for that matter my making talents i do fix things occasionally when i need to or when, I, when i'm when i'm curious about something what was the last thing you happened to fix i think maybe the last thing of any substance that I fixed was a bike um, I already had a bike but I was not very happy about um, my sort of lack of knowledge of how it all worked beyond the wheels going around uh, so I decided to buy a new bike uh, an extra bike a summer bike uh, and I bought one that was all that was basically not working not functioning but had a nice frame and I and I just kind of found replaced bought some new parts of it and tried to try to strip it down and build it back up again as a way of understanding how the bike was put together and how it worked. This sounds like the ideal maker repair project, really. It was a lot of fun, yeah. yeah. Did you succeed? Um, I did succeed, yeah. And it's actually a really nice bike to ride. I did break a vice in the process, <laughs> but apart from that, it was, it was all success. Do you feel more confident about maintenance of, of bikes as yes. a result? 
Yes, yes, less confident about using a voice. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. On the whole, I feel more confident. Excellent. It's interesting because Dave, uh, you are a very passionate cyclist and certainly yeah. an advocate of bringing together fixing of bikes to some of the restart parties that we uh, run in London. Oh, yeah. Um, the big fix event back in November, we had Hackney Bike Workshop there who volunteered bike repair outfit in Hackney. And yeah, we fixed your bike amongst others, if I remember rightly, Hugo. Um, yes, indeed. And a few others. So yeah, I think there's this whole synergy between the repair movement and being self-propelled, for instance. It's a very nice feeling to be independent in your transport as well as in your ability to fix things. So I think a lot of repairers ride bikes, a lot of makers ride bikes, I'm sure, as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of fun. And uh Actually, I find that it's often not as easy as you guys make it seem to, to repair or to just even do proper basic maintenance of a bike. Um, it, it, it makes me wonder whether people feel the same way about the tips that we provide for electrical and electronics repair. Oh, very much so. We've discussed this before. The most important thing about Restart is the feeling of if you like permitting people to do things that they feel they shouldn't do, you know, opening up their laptop, for instance, you look at the the look on someone's face sometimes when you actually say to them, yeah, you can take the back off this. Yeah, it won't explode, right? And it takes them a while to actually get up the courage to start unscrewing the screws. Once they've done it, you see the look on their face of, wow, I've done something that feels forbidden, something that's kind of almost dangerous or something. And yeah, the same with a bike. To be fair, also bikes... And much more, I mean, you, you're dependent on a bike. If you're riding along and the wheel falls off, you're in trouble. Whereas if you're using your laptop and it crashes, well, hmm. Yeah, it's, it's tedious and for some people a bit sort of, it feels like it's life-threatening, but it's not really. Yeah. So, uh, Dave, have you come across any interesting repair or repair tips the past week? Well, my favourite one was... I found it slightly unbelievable, but I was walking down my road and somebody had abandoned a very nice high-end vacuum cleaner. I won't name the brand, but it's one you all know. It's the iconic British um, inventor's vacuum cleaner. And uh, somebody had abandoned this and it looked in very good condition. So I thought, well, I'll take this home and see if I can repair it. Turned out it didn't need any repair. All it needed was emptying and cleaning. There was actually nothing wrong with it. Are you saying that... It had like a bag full of well, the, the cylinder. Stuff. Yeah, the it's one of the nice ones that doesn't have a bag. It has one of those nice see-through plastic tubes. You can see all the dirt in it, and it was literally chock full of dirt. But wait, wait, did you just simply have to empty the cylinder, and that was it? It was slightly more harder because the cylinder was so solidly packed with dirt that I had to kind of clean it out. I used. I used a screwdriver in the end to unjam the dirt in it. It was so it had been used so much and hadn't been emptied. The dirt had packed solid inside it. So are are you suggesting that the person who used this um device previously didn't know that you're supposed to empty the cylinder? Either didn't know or didn't want to. Right. Either way, and I believe I can think of no other reason why you'd abandon a perfectly good vacuum cleaner costing several hundred pounds other than you thought it was suddenly unusable. You wouldn't just dump it on the street in that state. And after the clean-up, now it works perfectly. It works beautifully, yes. Nice. So do you have any plans on what to do with it? 
Yes, my nice new vacuum cleaner. What we're going to do is I'm intending a re- future restart parties to run vacuum cleaner maintenance classes to encourage other people not to do the same thing. Evidently, that's highly needed. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, I should mention, we usually at our restart parties, we get one or two vacuum cleaners. And often one of the complaints is it doesn't suck well enough. Excuse there you go. Me. Yeah, and often it is simply maybe a loose seal or it's chalked up with dirt or needs a filter needs to clean. Right. Well, this really nicely brings us to the next item, which is our understanding of how things work and uh, the connection between knowing how to repair something and having taken something apart and potentially the desire to make something new as a result. Mm. So, Andrew, through your work researching maker culture, maker spaces uh, across the UK, um, what kind of trends have you come across in in this respect? I think maybe it's, Im- it's important to start by acknowledging the diversity of different kinds of makers out there. Um, long before there was a thing called the maker movement with, with capital M's, there were people making things, even people who called themselves makers. Um, and a good example, I think, of, of a more traditional maker movement would be something like um, what would be common in the agricultural world. If you're a farmer, you would be making things as a matter of course. You'd probably have your own, maybe have your own welder. You'd be able to repair fences and gates, um, farm machinery, all of these sorts of things. So making, or making do, if you like, um, fixing what's around you, seeing the kind of environment and, the, and the, the thing, the objects around you as being malleable and things that you're allowed to change and you have to change because no one else is going to do it. That would be very much part of that, that mindset of that kind of maker. Obviously, that's been going around for, going on for many, many centuries. Um, I think it gets a bit more complex with more modern makers, the kind of makers that we imagine when we talk about a maker movement, when we think about people playing with Arduinos and circuit boards and doing a bit of soldering and lighting up LEDs and so on. I think quite often that's, that kind of making is driven by the desire to, to make something new, maybe more than fixing something. Um, and it's also, it's also driven by, I guess, a desire to, to, to learn. You know, you set yourself a challenge. I want to learn how this kind of... Uh, controller works or these kinds of leds work or this kind of motor so you you're developing projects really as an excuse or you're making as an excuse to learn something and actually of course as i think we've both found out in these two examples we've given there can be a crossover there you know i i chose to do up a bike because i wanted to learn how it worked and maybe in the example of the vacuum cleaner that was that was discarded because the person who owned it couldn't be bothered didn't they weren't interested in learning how it worked yeah, well, I did have a similar experience with someone having left on the side of the house where I lived um, another vacuum cleaner, not realizing that apart from the bag, there was also a thing called the filter, and it wasn't sucking exactly for that reason. And they couldn't be bothered to explore and figure out whether that could be emptied or cleaned up. Well, going back to... to Maker spaces. Um, so, actually, a lot of people are still quite confused about what a maker space mm. is. And there's all these different names hack spaces, uh, maker spaces, make spaces. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, and of course that's a symptom of of being at a very at a period of very exciting change. Things are moving at a rapid pace, and people haven't quite figured out even basic stuff like what should we call it. But I think they have a certain. If you want to sort of get an understanding of what they are, they, I think they there are some general characteristics. So they are generally um, their workshops, so workshop spaces with places to work. They've got tools, um, uh, materials to work with. And you can come along and make a project, of usually of many different kinds. So that might be something that's based on electronics or wood or metal or uh, ceramics or fabrics. You can do it in a social environment. So that's really important that you're, you're not just doing it on your own in your own workshop at home, but you're doing it with other people. And some of those people are going to be people who know loads about stuff that you need to know about so they can really help you and, and vice versa. So there'll be people there who you can help. And then I think the last aspect maybe is really important is that you don't necessarily know how to do the thing you're going to do so unlike some more traditional workshops where you're expected to be an expert in something um, if you want to hire a kiln to fire some clay maybe then you would be expected to know what you were doing in a makerspace you might be able to go along and say well i want to make this thing or fix this thing i haven't got a clue where to start please can somebody help me right Actually, the, the aspect of socializing seems to be very crucial. I was reading the report that you uh, co-wrote uh, for Nesta, mm. and I was impressed by reading that the biggest reason for people on average to want to join a makerspace is socializing, well beyond the desire to make. Yeah, absolutely. And the more I talk to makers about about making and why they do it, the clearer, the, the clearer it seems to me that the social aspects of making are in probably the most important aspects uh, and actually the social aspects of technology in general and it feels to go back to, to the restart project in a way that's why restart project is interesting because you use the party as the kind of central organizing principle people come together to make uh, to repair in a social environment as opposed to just doing it themselves at home oh and it's definitely the case that uh, for a lot of people it's become a way to meet other people and in a sense, repairing is almost an excuse to learn yeah. something new, but in a friendly, um, collective way. Um, many new friendships have started between the volunteers oh, yeah. and between volunteers and participants over time. And the, the makers movement, uh, if it is a movement, mm -hmm. that's still to be debated, <laughs> but uh, seems to be quite... Uh, in need of um, of more understanding from people that are not part of it. And we, we find that often there is a bit of a disconnect between the understanding uh, uh, for people who are involved of what a makerspace is and kind of the um, little bit of confusion about what these spaces uh, can be or should be mm. for people who are not involved. In a sense that this poses a question of inclusiveness yeah. of the spaces. Yeah, and we know that's a problem. I, it's interesting to, to think about how, when you take a, a group of people, all with good intentions, how things can go slightly awry um, despite all those good intentions. And I think if you look at some of the problems that makerspaces, and in fact, our maker movement has in general, and the, maybe the lack of diversity, that's, that's a classic example of that. So I said before that I think one of the key principles of a makerspace is there's no expectation that you know what you're doing when you go in and i think that is a generally generally held principle in a lot of makerspaces but those intentions that 
that people who run the space and work in the space may have, they're not always visible to a new person, an outsider who comes in. So a lot of maker spaces will have a, an open evening or something. And they, use the, they have those open evenings to try and invite new people in and, and maybe even actively try and have a more diverse uh, membership. But it's very easy to go into a space and see, for example, a group of um, men, for example, sitting around a table looking at laptops and make a very quick assumption about what's going on, about their level of expertise, about the kinds of making they might be doing, about who all the other members are that you can't see. Are they all men as well? Um, so I think that's a really um, tricky puzzle to solve. And we need to be very careful about how we present what we do in a way that invites different kinds of people in. Well, we've been often invited to maker spaces and hack spaces to run restart parties there. And we've noticed that when uh, we run an event inside one of the spaces, actually, we bring with us a lot of people who had never been in that space before. And people loved the idea. And it made us think that maybe we should have different types of events that happen there, mm. uh, maybe helping people to transition from repairing into making. Yeah, in a it's, bit. it's a great way to start, isn't it? I think it's maybe slightly daunting to think about making something from scratch, you know, even give, being given a kit of parts. And you know, as is typical in a kind of soldering workshop, you would be given some LEDs and, and bits and pieces and you, know, you can set about making it. But that maybe is a slightly daunting prospect. Whereas if you've got something which is almost almost functional but it's just a bit broken and you can repair it then you can leave with a, having achieved something and it's maybe it's a it's an easier way in for some people the other issue is this desire for for the maker movement to be seen as all about sustainability <laughs> and uh, green innovation or maybe it's not even its own desire but it's charged with those expectations from potential funders mm. Um, and often there seems to be a bit of a disconnect between that and the reality on the ground. Yeah, I'd agree. I, I, there are definitely some makers who I know and maker spaces maybe that, that focus more on those kinds of sustainable issues or thinking about how material flows around a city and how it can be done, that can be done more efficiently. But um, I wouldn't say that's necessarily uh, a, you know, a commonly held view. Um, and, and I think where I do see that maybe more often is is in more traditional environments. So, you know, university environments, for example, where you have material scientists, you know, pro, you know, professionals or people who are training to be professionals in a very particular kind of um, specialism of science. And they are looking at, you know, how, how we can use materials, you know, very advanced new materials more effectively in a more environmentally sustainable way. And I feel like those are maybe more more where the interesting things are happening. Although there seems to be in other cities, not in London, um, a more of a collective approach towards making a green city possible through distributed fab labs, for example. Yes. Obviously, the, the, the typical case is Barcelona. Barcelona yeah. And there seems to be something about Barcelona that has made this possible. I don't know if you have any opinion on why. I'm... I'm well, I'm not very well informed about Barcelona, but I believe they have some public funding. Uh, so that obviously, not just, you know, obviously money lets you do certain things, but it also creates certain expectations and it sets sets an infrastructure up, in that case, a fab lab infrastructure, 
in a certain with a certain stance, you know, that it's for the public good. And of course, a lot of maker spaces uh, are not for, designed to be for the public good. They're, they're members clubs. They're a group of like-minded people who come together, who share a common interest, and they they all chip in a membership fee to make that happen. And that's a fantastic thing. But that's not a that's not an institution that's set up necessarily to benefit their city or the environment or some other external factor. One of the connections between the makers and repairers movement um, has been beautifully emerging from an article we we shared this week on our website and uh, on social media and that got a lot of traction and interest in people and it was about a, a project uh, to turn or upcycle a microwave in a spot welder now dave uh, <laughs> tell me a bit more about what a spot welder actually is okay um Welding basically is joining two pieces of metal together at a very high temperature. That I get. Right. So in other words, you melt two pieces of metal and smash them together. They then fuse together. The liquid metals join together and you end up with effectively one piece of metal. Okay. Spot welding is doing that on a very small scale. So you take two pieces of metal. You then melt them in one particular point. I'm gesticulating here. I shouldn't be. Um, So imagine two sheets of metal. You then heat one area on both of those sheets of metal and press them together. Okay, that's a spot weld. Perfect. So imagine someone taking apart a microwave oven and give it a second life as a spot welder. When we read about this, we were very excited. And so we went and digged in a little bit more and we found out that longtime maker Matthew Borgatti had actually... Uh, out of need because he has a small uh, workspace in Brooklyn, actually decided to try this out. Obviously, it's not something that we recommend people to just try (laughs) at home. He created a fairly comprehensive guide uh, that we'll link uh, to. um, And he does claim that you still need to be very careful even if you know what you're doing. Mm. But the interesting thing is... The maker culture um, ability to to bring creativity to existing resources and mm. making resourcefulness as like the key piece of the puzzle, uh, turning any end of life product into something completely new mm. that can work for many more years. Yeah, I think one of the things that a lot of makers have in common is a a kind of level of ambition which is is maybe unrealistic. You know, we want to make ridiculously um, high-performing things or complex things. And if you're starting from scratch, if you're starting from raw materials, that's quite difficult and these things are, can be quite challenging. And one of the benefits we we have living in the kind of uh, consumer society, especially a consumer society with so much waste or throwing away um, objects, is that those objects can be stripped of um, really useful resources, uh, as you would find in a microwave. In fact, there's lots of useful things in microwaves. Uh, so they kind of give you a leg up that ladder. You can you can start to do something which is quite ambitious, audacious even, um, by making use of the resources that are around you. Excellent. And now for something else. Um, this week it's been quite the biggest story in uh, the tech press. Uh, this error fifty three. Um, story of potentially planned obsolescence from Apple, or at least that's how people like to call these things. Um, So in essence, 
a lot of people found out that if you break your uh, recent iPhone 6 or 6S um, and uh, have it repaired at a shop that's a non-authorized shop, so not on an Apple store, basically, um, chances are that when you upgrade the software to the next uh, uh, release, uh, your phone will be bricked if you have had your home button or the cable connecting the home button to the rest of the device uh, swapped as a result. Now, this has caused a tremendous amount of outrage and uh, possibly a lot of confusion as well. So I wanted to ask you, uh, Andrew, what, what your thoughts were on this. Uh, yeah, so I read a couple of articles in The Guardian uh, about this and I was a little bit sceptical about the motives of the journalist and, and how their, their interests might be aligned with writing a negative story about Apple. That would generate the, the, the article a lot of page views. And, and I also was a little bit concerned about the level of speculation in the articles. So I feel like my, sort of, my hunch coming out of it, and I don't really know, I don't have any sort of special insider knowledge, is that they probably cocked up slightly. Um, but I don't think it's a conspiracy. Uh, and I think... It's a kind of inevitable sign of things to come as as devices become less just physical objects and more front ends to uh, software or even remote, you know, cloud based services. I think these are the kinds of problems we're going to have to deal with more and more. Dave, what's your take? Okay, um, firstly, the technical detail is basically if you've had the the button on the front of your phone replaced. That's the problem because, strangely, each of those buttons has a unique identity. And Apple's fear is that someone will take the button off a phone, replace it with another button which lies about who your, what your fingerprint is and tells the rest of the phone, no, that really is your fingerprint. So they'll be able to steal your phone and access your bank account, for instance. Okay, That's the fear. That's why Apple have done this. But my take is, yeah, I agree, it's a cock-up, not a conspiracy. But it's a pretty bad cock-up from the user, user's perspective. You know, it makes no difference why they've done it or how they've done it. The end result is they can't use their phone. And, for instance, yes, I agree, the Guardian article is sensationalist, but it gives a very genuine example of someone who's in a foreign country where there is no Apple repair service. They wanted to use their phone. Now, what are they supposed to do, carry a spare phone around? So they were forced to you know, do a backstreet repair, if you like, which then balked their phone when it upgraded to iOS 9. I would argue that the, the example of the, the journalist, I think he's in Macedonia or somewhere, he's, yeah. covering, you know, he's covering a worthy cause or something, and um, you know, he, he drops his phone and has to get repaired. I would argue that that's an interesting case study because it maybe suggests that he should buy, there should be a different kind of phone that he can buy that's more <laughs> robust, maybe more resilient, can be repaired more easily, in the way that if you go to some countries, you know, they, people drive around in Toyota Land Cruisers and so on because they're easy to repair. Yeah. Well, we spoke to our uh, local uh, repair friends, Love Phone, uh, here in London, who told us that this is very worrying uh, for them as an independent uh, iPhone repair shop because it seems to bring all of the spotlight against third-party repairs, while this problem actually also occurs uh, if people drop the phone, the phone continues to work, but for some reason the home button doesn't work. And if you upgrade the software, uh, even if you haven't had it repaired, um, it mm. would still break or make your phone unusable. So there's clearly a problem there. Mm. Um, and 
just claiming that the problem is third-party repairs is quite unfair. And uh, actually, third-party repairs seem to be quite an essential part of the ecosystem. Clearly, Apple has initially wasn't even providing any repair services for most uh, iPhone users. It let a whole ecosystem of third-party repairs emerge without distributing spare parts. And then it started offering it when it saw that the market size was big enough uh, to make money out of it. But actually to claim that um, by providing a security reason for for this, um, it would be enough to shut down completely a phone is quite uh, excessive. Certainly, they could come up with a way to disable the um, home banking and Apple Pay features and leave the phone working, or at least notify you that if you are going to upgrade the phone software, the whole phone would be rendered unusable. Mm. And that, I think, especially... We need to fix and see it fixed very, very soon. So we are getting to a close. I would like just to announce our next uh, restart party happening tomorrow here in London in Kentish Town Community Centre from 6 to 9pm. And you can find out more about the Restart Project and our events on our website, therestartproject.org, on Twitter and Facebook at Restart Project. Thanks for listening and thanks again for our guests and see you next week. Thank you.